check, 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 check. All right, it's 2016 and we are back. Um, back here on our regular schedule at the Hammer Factor. We got a lot of your messages, certainly appreciate those. Wondering where we were at and when we were going to get our asses back in gear. Well, we're back. Now, if you like our show or want us to cover any certain topics, maybe want to hear an interview from your favorite athlete, learn about your destination you, you want to go paddling or, or whatever it is, let us know. Send us a message and we will get it done. We love our viewer mail. All right, we're back. Let's get into this week's show. We got uh, some good rants and raves, Luke Hopkins, conservation updates with, updates with Lewis. Here we go. Guess ready to fire this up? <laughs> yeah. Let's light this candle. All right. We're back. I'm not sure what episode of Hammer Factor this is. It's been a little bit since we've done one. It's been vacation time. Um, I believe two of our three hosts have been out of the country. The other was on a two-week trip to the van, uh, Grand Canyon. So we're happy to be back in the studio. And my name is John Grace. I'm the show producer. On the handle, we have Lewis Geltman, poker champion, policy counsel for the Outdoor Alliance, and North Fork champion. Lewis, how's it going? Doing well. What? Uh, from Chile last night and feeling good. Oh, you just got back last night? Yeah, I'm at my mom's house here in Maryland. Just got in yesterday in D.C. for a couple days and then back to the snowy northwest. All right. And... Also on the horn, we have John Weld, co-founder of Immersion Research and legendary whitewater kayaker. John? Mm. Hello. How you doing? Good. It's good to be back. You know, a little, what, four or five day break and we're back. Yeah, it was like a four week break and I got, oh, I don't wow. know if I should be, if we should be flattered by this or how we should take it, but I, we got about a dozen kind of little hate mails Um People wondering where their podcast was, so at least we have twelve people listening. Yeah, I did notice, you know, among the podcasts I listened to, there was a bit of a hiatus over the holiday, so I don't feel like we were too out of time with that. No, we missed a couple, but you know, whatever. All right, um, well, so we Lewis, have great shows lined up, I should say. We do, we do have, a, we have a good show lined up on this show. We have Luke Hopkins. I'm not sure how to quite define Luke Hopkins, but. Um, Long-time no paddler, is. entrepreneur, one-wheel SUP professional. The list kind of goes on and on there. But before we get into that, Lewis, tell me about your trip to South America. I had no idea you were even going to South America, so welcome back. It was sweet, man. It was awesome. Um, I feel like sometimes I get a little bit jealous with all the folks in the gorge. Everybody's always kind of just rolling in or out to or from somewhere exotic and rad and one of my buddies uh, Nate Klama invited me kind of last minute to go down and meet him and some other folks for uh for Baker uh and a few days on the Fuda which is somewhere I'd always kind of wanted to go and uh it was cool down there have you been down there Weld or Grace I've been I, down there for my honeymoon I've been Thanks. to the Fuda but I've never been down to the Baker it's Baker is sick it was uh it's the middle of nowhere. I mean, you gotta you gotta take a bit of a drive to get there. It was probably like fourteen hours south from Fuda. Probably probably paved about a third of the way. Um, but uh, sort of like, I mean, probably between thirty and fifty thousand cfs. Oh, big. Yeah, super big. Um, I don't know. Sort of the obvious comparison, I guess, is like the Sakin, but it felt it felt like quite a bit bigger and less controllable, but also maybe a little bit, uh, a little bit more forgiving. Like there weren't kind of the, the horrible wedge holes and places that you just absolutely couldn't be. It was more just like consistently massive whirlpools and seams and eddy lines. And that was kind of what it seemed like created the hazards, but it was, uh, it was cool. Like I felt like the, it was not really possible to have like super consistent lines down there. It was like kind of like no matter what you did, you were going to go for a big ride at some point or another as long as you kind of stayed in your boat and stayed cool. It was going to work out at the bottom. But So trip report, how, like how many days you're on the water? How many miles is it? What's it? What's the, 
the general logistics. One day, doing like probably three and a half hours. Uh, it's pretty much roadside, although it doesn't really feel that way being in southern Chile and whatnot. Um, I was down there, I guess I ran it three days, but uh, Nate Klima, Sam Grafton had been down there a little while previously, and they ran it like 10 days straight. Not 10 days straight, but I think they got 10 runs, which is... Uh, Probably more than my nerves would necessarily be up for. But uh makes my shoulders hurt. That's cool. <laughs> well, welcome back. Yeah, thanks, man. All right, so there's been some uh interesting uh conservation news um floating around. You, you care to touch on anything uh anything yeah, that you've I've seen out there? Been happily out of touch for the last couple weeks, but uh um there's a confirmation hearing tomorrow for uh, Ryan Zinke, the Montana uh, congressman who's nominated to be the head of the Department of Interior. So that'll be interesting. I think I'm going to, as soon as we get done recording here, I'm going to put together a, uh, a letter to the Senate Energy and Natural Resources Committee who you know, holds those confirmation hearings. And I'll probably go down and watch the hearing tomorrow since I'm in D.C. So that'll be interesting. So you'll be in the room where it's actually happening? Yeah, it's like a big... I've actually never gone to a hearing in Congress before, but I mean, I think it's like kind of the... Uh, I don't know, you can watch it on C-SPAN or whatever, but it's, you know, the senators will kind of be at the front of the room and they'll be questioning Zinke sitting at the desk or whatever, and then there's, you know, space in the back for everyone to sit and hang out and watch. It's sort of like, I don't know, a courtroom or something like that. Could you wear an LVM T-shirt to the thing? Maybe get some some press, <laughs> like photo bomb, like a like a reporter or something. Can you go in? Can you go in and ask how many? What's their favorite episode of the Hammer Factory? Like, can you go to the senators and be like, so which is your favorite episode? Did you like? But if I see anybody who's liable to know what the hell we're talking about, I, I will ask them. But <laughs> I'll call them we can make some Hammer Factory lapel pin or something like that. Wherever that suits to appropriate occasions i don't know well, all right so trump, so trump i think the big thing about trump is sort of the level of unknown i mean it's just a lot of unpredictability but he's certainly made uh he's certain you know his his cabinet and his appointees are becoming more well known what where do we stand as paddlers tell what are me, the things we need to be looking tell out me about for? this montana guy what do you know about yeah him? yeah have we talked about this already not really i think we've i don't remember so Zinke has been on, uh, you know, I guess we talked about this a little bit the last time about kind of like the committee structure with Congress about how they're, you know, some people in Congress are more important than others for our issues. And Zinke has been one of those people. He's uh, the congressman from Montana. He's on House Natural Resources, which means they kind of take a first cut at any legislation that has to do with natural resources stuff. So he's voted on a lot of things that are really important for us. And he's, he's been kind of a mixed bag. Like he's said some really good things about keeping public lands public. He's, you know, taken some, some votes that have, you know, bucked his party and a buck the committee chairman to, you know, to vote on, on things in a way that we would want him to. So that's been really good. He's also taken some really bad votes. He's been a big proponent of coal development on public lands. Um, So, you know, I mean, generally I'd say he's been kind of a mixed bag, but by the hunter, like hunters and fishermen in Montana have uh, sway over his, his opinion. Yeah, absolutely. He has a really good relationship with some of the hunting and angling organizations who are really supportive of his nomination. Um, you know, I mean, it's not it's not who we would have gotten under a Clinton administration, but given sort of the standards by which uh, we're going to be judging these, you know, nominees for all sorts of things, I think that we we've done pretty well. I don't think that you know he's not Scott Pruitt, the EPA nominee who doesn't believe in climate change and basically works for the fossil fuel industry in Oklahoma. Is he the vaccine he's- denier too? Who's the vaccine denier? So that's Kennedy. Oh. Bizarrely, is yeah Robert F. Kennedy Jr. who actually founded Waterkeeper Alliance. Yeah, that's so weird. He's done yeah. like a really good things, but apparently he's also kind of out to lunch. I don't know. I don't I know did, what to make of the I, vaccine. Stuff, I did. A, I did a Grand Canyon trip with him. That's that's just such a weird thing. To... So let me shift gears here real quick, and this kind of affects you, John. Um, 
And there's been this initiative to move the outdoor retailer show out of Salt Lake City due to some um, pushes by some Utah representatives to open up some of the recently designated public lands to mining access, things like that. I believe Patagonia is a big push behind this from the headline that I saw. What have you guys heard about that? And what do you think of moving the outdoor retailer show weld? Well, for, just for the uninitiated out there, outdoor retailer is the industry's largest trade show the outdoor industry's largest trade show. Uh, it happens twice a year, once the summer, once in the uh, winter and the reason why many consumers may not know about it is because it's basically between manufacturers and store owners. Um, and while it sounds kind of niche and like a kind of a, a local small trade show, it's actually huge. I mean, it brings in millions upon millions of dollars into Salt Lake City uh, every year. And in the past, you know, um, public officials from Utah have fought very hard to keep that show there. And um, I guess now it's in jeopardy. For me, it doesn't matter. I mean, this is, I don't want to get too behind the scenes on this, but Paddle Sports has actually looked like it's leaving the outdoor retailer show, um, uh, which is a mistake in my opinion, but that's maybe a conversation from somewhere else. But um, I, I mean, it's, I think this is interesting for me because this will, this will be uh, a good, a good, uh, we'll get to see how much influence the outdoor industry has. You know what I mean? Um, because there is, I mean, it's a ton of money that comes into that show, you know? I mean, Lewis, what do you know about it? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I think that, you know, the Utah congressional delegation and the state of Utah have, you know, they obviously have benefit tremendously from outdoor recreation through tourist spending, through all the equipment manufacturers that are located in Utah, through a retailer. And at the same time, they have this congressional delegation and state leaders who are, really pushing hard to, you know, take over federal public lands, which, you know, we've talked about it a little bit briefly, you know, briefly a little bit before, but if the states take over the federal public lands, they're immediately going to be saddled with all of the management costs that are currently borne by the entire country. And the result is that they're going to immediately have to massively ramp up resource extraction, user fees, and potentially just sell off public lands outright. So it's this like terrible, terrible idea, really threatening to you know, everyone who enjoys public lands. And you know, the state of Utah is has been talking about suing the federal government to take over the the public lands, which is you know kind of a baseless legal theory. But they're still making noise about it. Their representatives in Congress have been you know pushing legislation that would turn over public lands to the states, and that Congress actually could do, which is you know a huge threat and. Yeah. Why are these people pushing for this? I mean, what's the upside for them if suddenly Utah is saddled with it's this responsibility? It's got to be private interest, fi- private interest. Yeah, I mean, it's oil and gas industry. It's, uh, you know, a handful of people who have this, you know, sort of ideological opposition to the federal government and, you know, think that, you know, we're going to run it better and we don't, we don't want anybody in Washington, D.C. telling us what to do. But at the same time, it's like, you know, these lands like national forest blm lands they belong to everyone like you and i are just as much owners of the public lands in utah as the people who live in utah and that's that's just how it is you know and it's like they belong to all americans in common and we all pay the cost of managing them together and they belong to everyone not the state of utah to use as a you know way to make money and uh uh, so, you know, people in the outdoor industry for a long time have said, you know, we've kind of had it with, you know, the state of Utah who benefits so much from our presence here and from public lands in general, taking all these positions that are contrary to our interests. And if you guys are going to continue, you know, taking these positions and working against the outdoor industry in a public policy setting, then we're going to move our trade show. And like, as John was saying, it's something that brings a, like an unbelievable amount of money to, to Salt Lake City every year. So, yeah, I don't know, you know, I don't know what's going to happen with that. It seems like in a way that, that the power of that, that moving the trade show like that exists in the threat to do it. Like once they actually did it, I'm not sure that it's going to, going to help anything. So, uh, I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen. Uh, It'd be easy to call that bluff, but it wouldn't take much. I mean, I think there's probably a half a dozen companies who go to a retailer who could, who could pretty much sway that decision, you know, if Patagonia and North Face and 
You know, it sounds like a black diamond and a handful of others pulled out. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess they'd go to they'd probably go to Denver or something. I don't know. I wonder yeah, how I mean, much money I've well, spent at outdoor retailer show. I know. I, I mean, IR alone has spent deep six figures over the past eighteen years. Not deep, but certainly six figures. Mm-hmm. You know. Well, moving on. I think uh, I think our best course of action is to get on a newsletter, make your voice heard. There's all kinds of options to write to your local representative. I know that in the past two weeks, I have sent more letters and made more phone calls to local representatives than I have probably in my entire life. So that's maybe awesome. that's happening all over the place. I think that's uh, I think that's the course of action at this point. It's good. Make sure your AW membership is up to date. Get on. OAS mailing list, and we'll uh, let you know what to do. All right, so now we're going to move to our celebrity guest. And while I'm patching in our celebrity guest, John, why celebrity don't we, guest, why don't you take a second to uh, tell our audience a little bit about uh, about who we're getting on the phone here? I should probably let Luke really flesh out these details. Luke Hopkins is a DC paddler who's been who's been around the paddling scene for a while. I think he was one of IR's first athletes or one of the top, you know, first three or four athletes that we had on board. He was definitely there for the playboating heyday of the late nineties. Um, and he went on to do like a well here he is. Luke, are you there? Yeah, how you guys doing? Good. Welcome to the show. Um, you're on the phone with John Weld, Lewis Geltman, and John Grace. And welcome to the Hammer Factor. Thanks for coming on, Luke. Thanks, guys. Hey, Luke. How's it going, man? <laughs> Good. How you doing, Lewis? Good. So, All right. This is gonna this is gonna be a bit, a bit like a Senate confirmation hearing. There's gonna be <laughs> some very difficult questions. <laughs> Well, quite frankly, going to be offensive and challenging. Well, hang on. Oh, no. <laughs> just a second before we get on that. Luke, we were going to have you last week, but you were out at the Consumer Electronics Show. Um, tell us a little bit about the, what is the Consumer Electronics Show? What were you doing out there? Um, well, the Consumer Electronics Show is kind of where um, these giant companies like Apple or GoPro – um, or Samsung and everything in between, they're coming together to launch all their new and latest products and features. And um, that is that is the cutting edge of uh, innovation in electronics. And there's everything from ridiculous massage chairs that cost $20,000 to um, a device that you wear on your face that makes it so... You can sleep for 20 minutes and it feels like three hours. Whether that's hocus pocus or not, there's everything in between, including a, a lot of flying drone-like devices as well. <laughs> how big is this show? Put a scale on how, how big the area you're walking around is. The uh, it's in multiple buildings. So the Las Vegas Convention Center is known as like the biggest convention center ever. It seems like, and it doesn't even all fit in that convention center. So um, there's multiple convention centers, and it's probably the size of, like, I don't know, maybe, like, 20 Walmarts and is full of all sorts of mind-blowing little things. But I was actually out there uh, launching the latest version of One Wheel, which is the self-balancing off-road board sport uh, crazy vehicle that's uh, been all over the SUP industry and the outside industry. So wait, let's back up for a second because it's been sort of a long and winding road from where you started in DC as a paddler back in the in the 50s and 60s uh, to doing this one wheel thing. Now, and I was saying before you came on, you you're a DC paddler, and you were I think one of the very first IR athletes. Is that right? Does that sound right? I think I was the first IR athlete. I was friends <laughs> with the um, um, one of the early. Oh right, our right, right. employees, Eric Brooks, and that's right. brought me into the fold with you guys, and yeah. Um, yeah, so that's kind of where it all where it all started. This was back in the like the boom, the the playboating boom of the nineties, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what do you? What do you, I mean? You sound you sound 
uh, skeptical about that. I mean, what's your what's your what's your uh, recollection of that time in the sport? Well, it was um, it was like an ex- it was an exciting time. It um, I was really young, and the sport was like this. You know, I hadn't been in the sport long enough to realize like how significant that time period was. And uh, looking back, um, I realized that that time period actually was somewhat insignificant in the sense that that boom didn't really last. Um, but it was a great time for uh, a lot of innovation to happen and a lot of uh, new products and new competitors in the marketplace. I mean, I, I think what you guys have done at IR in, um, in addressing like more stylish gear and better gear is a lot of what was happening back there in that boom. Every kayak company wanted to make more stylish kayaks and, and more competitive and higher quality products. And that boom kind of drove everyone to do just that. Yeah. There was a time just before that era, like in the early nineties, where if you wanted a dry top or a paddle jacket, it was blue or black, or I think like Stolquist had like a teal one. That was teal. like the I most had, outrageous had, choice you could make. I had a teal and purple uh, right. dry suit is my first dry suit and dry top i did too exactly. <laughs> it had like it had felt around the collar it was yeah yeah i had one of those style <laughs> and then you know at one point it, it, like the, the the peak of the frenzy we got this crazy idea to put together a poster like a poster we'd send out to our customers and it was a ridiculous project so we hired a photographer and what we did is we had luke we got a we, we rented a bunny costume like a full, like gigantic head fur bunny costume. And uh, Luke paddled uh, the Great Falls. He paddled the spout of this thing. It was like dead of winter, too, because there was ice in the, in the picture, right? Like all over the banks. <laughs> we had Luke paddle Great Falls several times with his bunny head on his head. <laughs> and then, um, Luke, I'm sure you remember this, right? Oh, yeah. Every time I ran the drop, it felt like my head was getting ripped off because it actually was getting ripped off. The head probably weighed 40 or 50 pounds at least when it was soaking wet. Yep. It was pretty funny. It was definitely a moment uh, of disbelief that it was actually working. And, um, you know, paddling up to the lip of that drop with uh, that giant bunny head on, um, it had these little screens of the eyes. So you actually looked through like these screens that had the eyeballs painted onto and the littlest bit of water filled in those screens and it made it completely blind to paddle so they were always partially filled in and i was looking through like the screens that actually didn't have water in them and we'd yell down we'd be like we need to do it again (laughs) you'd hike up back over the thing with that bunny head and then for some reason that bunny costume made it i think like around the country there's a bunch of footage of the bunny head like in skook and a bunch of other places Oh yeah, it was a it was a fun comical thing to kind of bring back to life every once in a while. And um, people, you know, I, I've walked in, uh, you know, bathrooms in restaurants in small yeah. paddling towns, even in the last twelve months, and seen that poster on the wall. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> anyway, so moving along. What? You, what at wait, some wait, point, wait. Yeah. Okay, go ahead, John. I'm sorry to interrupt. No, no, no. You got it. So one one other thing. Uh, Luke, that stuck out to me One, a long time ago on the Russell Fork. I saw you on in a C1, but with a kayak paddle. Did that? Whatever happened to that? I I just remember you just crushing it at that little wave hole there at the takeout, and it just being super dynamic. And I was like, oh man, that could be something. What? Whatever. Whatever happened with that? Just personal curiosity. Well, you know, it was um, I so I have kind of lower back problems. And I'm not very I'm not very flexible. Like I can't touch my toes, and probably never will. Um, and so when I was in some of these kayaks, as a kayaker and competing in freestyle, that lack of flexibility was like made it made certain things like pretty challenging. And I really appreciated the position of C1. But who doesn't appreciate having two paddle blades? Yeah. I mean, that's just. So um, I appreciated the fact that I could actually, you know, I could, I could, I was more flexible in a C1. I could lay forward on the boat a lot better. So um, I kind of just took what I was good at in C1 and in position, and then took the knowledge that I had in actually holding a kayak paddle with two blades and how to use it, 
and combine the two. And like the first major controversy that came up was at the U.S. team trials, where I like I, I pretty much read the uh, what classifies a kayak, and it was pretty much you just have to have two paddle blades. And so I competed at the U.S. team trials with a C1 with a really low saddle, and never said anything to anybody as I like went out there and used a kayak paddle blade and it was totally awesome i had like the highest scoring rides of the event and i was like well this is gonna cause a big problem <laughs> what happened um there was a huge controversy and then christine jackson actually um argued internationally for me to be able to go to the world championships and um she actually won that argument and then i um I didn't go because I think I thought Australia seemed like a really long ways to go to go paddling. So I didn't go. But good job, Christine. Thank you for uh, making that very strong argument. <laughs> yeah, I, I just remember it being super dynamic and just the rotation and the kind of the torque you could get on the boat was it was obvious that you were that there was something there. I was I always kind of thought, especially in the freestyle realm, that maybe it'd catch on, but. Guess it never did. Sometimes, I yeah, just... I think the, I think you just need more people pushing it and more controversy. And you know, the the thing about it is, uh, I think we somewhat we're still somewhat operating in a traditionalized sport, and you need a pretty strong like entire brand push to kind of change the game of any sport that has a lot of traditional roots in it. Mm-hmm. I mean, I guess the thing for me is, I just I see how much fun all the sea owners I know have constantly outfitting their boats and i'm just like man (laughs) i look at them crawl out of the boat like at the end of the day and i'm like i want that (laughs) okay all right we gotta we got we gotta move we gotta move on we gotta move on guys all right john okay quickly let's talk about how you got to sup because you started doing stride ride at some point during your career here what what led up to that um so you know I, i grew up with board sports and you know, I was snowboarding and riding a skateboard, riding a skateboard when I was a kid and breaking all sorts of, um, <laughs> breaking all sorts of bones. And then uh, I got into kayaking and I think my parents were really happy about that at a young age because water is not that, um, hard typically. <laughs> and I wasn't getting hurt and I was having a lot of fun, but at the root of it, I really did love board sports. I like being on my feet. I like balancing, snowboarding, kiteboarding, you know, all of those board sports. So I went from kayaking to involving a little bit of kiteboarding into the mix. And then SUP was kind of the perfect blend for me because I'm a board sport guy from my childhood. But paddle sports, I love having a paddle. And, um, so SUP was like that board sport with a paddle. So let's get, let's get to the red meat here. I'm going to make an analogy that like drones at CES are like SUP at outdoor retailer. They're everywhere. Like the past three or four years at outdoor retailer, it seems like there's, there's 10 to 50 new SUP companies getting pushed farther and deeper into the tents and throughout the show. Um, and if you talk to like a paddle sports executive, they're looking at SUP as more or less the savior to paddle sports. Um, what are you? What are your thoughts on that as a business, as an in, as an industry? Um, do you think we have a boom going on here, or do you think this the sport has some legs, or what's going on? The sport definitely has some legs. When you see everyday people who've never held a kayak paddle, or um, obviously a stand up paddle, and they get on a stand up paddle board, you can see it authentically in the way they experience it and the way they talk about it that experience that customer experience is what is going to keep legs underneath this industry for a long time but as with any industry that comes out of nowhere um it has it is having like you know new consumer first product growth and that is getting to some maturity in a lot of ways and it's going to turn into a little bit of a industry that is going to have to be maintained by uh, um, brands that actually have compelling products uh, that promote that authentic experience and not just me too products. I mean, what if the kayak industry had 400 kayak brands and um, 
that's kind of what's going on in SUP. There's 400 brands out there and there's new brands coming online all the time and they don't realize that there's 400 brands out there. If they did, they probably wouldn't be doing what they're doing. Now, when you say 400 um, brands, are you being literal in 400 brands or there's like a lot of brands? How, how many brands? I think are there? there's over 400 brands now. That, listen worldwide. to that number, 400 and how many, brands. How many board manufacturers are there in the world, do you reckon? Like six? Um, <laughs> as far as, no, I mean, I would I would say as far as like in, Like in Asia, because... I mean, I have a picture in my mind of most of these boards coming out of the same six to ten factories in Asia somewhere. No, I mean, I, I would say I'd say there's twenty-five to thirty board manufacturers right now. But the uh, but if you ask me the same question in five years, I'd say there's fifteen to twenty, and then ten years from now, I'd say there's five to ten. It's just uh, you know, the board manufacturing business is a little bit like the actual brands. Everyone wants to make something, and everyone so it's it's a little bit of the same. I don't so, know, Gelman, What's your take on this? On the long-term sustainability of SUP? Yeah, I mean, just as a sport. I mean, I'm just not close enough to it to say, but I mean, it seems to me like, like given that most of the market is beginners and is going to be beginners forever. It's going to get to be a thing. It's going to get to be like. It's going to get to a point where the biggest competition for new sub manufacturers is going to be Craigslist, right? Like it's like it's like open canoeing. It's like if you want an open canoe, like you do not need the new open canoe to go paddle flat water with your kid and go fish for sunfish, right? It's like you just go find one on Craigslist or buy like a Coleman canoe, and it seems to me like that's going to be the biggest problem for the viability of sub as like a long term business. But I'm just, I'm not close enough to it to say. I mean, that's just my general impression. I think you're right. I mean, I, I do think the canoeing analogy actually uh, is, is pretty accurate in a lot of ways. Like, if I was going to go buy a canoe, I would search Craigslist probably before I searched anything else. The, um, you know, the, the way people use a paddleboard, um, <clears throat> from like laying on it, sunbathing, to jumping off and going swimming and jumping back on it. Like that, that is like one of the most compelling things about it's, uh, it's kind of mass appeal is that it's really just like a platform of just trying to have fun, even if it's just like at your lake house. And, uh, and that's where I think it has a lot of legs underneath of it is that, but I, but I think like the retail value for that kind of product is, you know, I'd pay a hundred bucks for that kind of product, you know what I mean? Or 150, you know? Yeah. And I think that's actually like what's happening in the industry. The, the industry is trying to drive the the consumer is in the industry are getting driven to a lower price point. Like I think making boards over a thousand dollars right now is a uh, is a daunting prospect and is very high risk. I mean, what do you think about Confluence? You know, making SUP boards. I mean, obviously, I think they're more brand aware. I mean, do you think that's a a, a dicey proposition for them to get into this market? Should this be really just better handled by the people going right to Dick's and Costco and things like that? Or what, what, what do you think about that? Hmm. Well, I think, I think Confluence is coming in uh, fairly late in the game. If they had established themselves in the very beginning and had the mentality of Jake Burton, um, which would have been about six or seven years ago, they could have been uh, they could have been the ski industry and they could have been the snowboard industry all right there in the beginning. But now they're kind of coming in later, and I think they're going to have a harder time than they think. And yeah. they got five years of like drinking the Kool Aid that once they get into SUP, it's going to be a cakewalk. Well, they just jumped into the housing market at the <laughs> at the wrong time. Uh -huh. that's, right. that's what I think. What 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 do you think as far as uh? Your general outdoor retail, your general outdoor paddle shop, um, picking up SUP. Are they? Is is it a good business model for them, or are they going to bring in a bunch of inventory and there's going to be super similar products offered at larger box type stores or whatever at half the price? Is there is there is there an edge between those two? Um, yeah, I mean, I think that there is an edge, uh, but you, you have to be careful what you bring in and what brands are marketing 
the product well to facilitate sell through. And I'm sure, you know, I'm sure Weld understands that to a significant degree. Like you don't want to put IR in the wrong type of store that doesn't have the the demographic that's actually desiring that, desiring the brand. And I think the same applies in SUP that you have to make sure to keep, have strong brands that have the marketing legs behind it and place them in the right retail environment. And, uh, and it's going to, um, yeah. No, I think, I mean, you have SUP in, in the ocean, you know, which to me is where it came from. And it, it makes a tremendous amount of sense there. You know, it, you know, taking SUP board out in the waves is, is really, really quite fun and it's engaging and it makes sense right off the bat. When you get inland, I mean, and that's a whole different industry than what we do. You know, people talk about that as paddle sports, but to me, it's as different as surfing is to, is to paddle sports, at least as a gear manufacturer. But as you get inland, it, it gets to be a little bit more difficult because I think the people are taking boards out on lakes and stuff like that. You know, they're the ones who are going to go to Dick's or Costco's or Craigslist as this thing evolves, I think. Um, and then you have these weird places, you know, like I know my friends at CKS Main Street, you know, like Fred and, and crew, and they're selling a tremendous amount of these expensive boards to people who are paddling whitewater rivers in these, which is like, to me, like a uniquely Colorado phenomena where you have these outdoor enthusiasts engaging these high-end, difficult <laughs> sports that are like the dream consumer. Um, and you have a few pockets of that around the country, you know, where a retail environment for SUP, like a retail specialty store, makes makes a tremendous amount of sense, you know. But if I was in Oklahoma City and looking at carrying SUP boards, I'd be thinking more of a rental program than I would be in terms of retail. Well, yeah, I think you're right. You're, you're totally right. Well, let's 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 talk a little bit about whitewater SUP. Uh, personally, I think that moving whitewater class one, class two, class three is a lot of fun on an SUP. Weld hates it. Let's talk about that. What's your what's your why are you why are you so anti the whitewater SUP, John? I'm not anti the whitewater SUP. Let's let's make that clear. I think where my frustration comes from is the number of times we get approached by people saying that we should make gear for whitewater SUP, um, not realizing how small of a sport that really is and how by and large we're all kayakers and I'll just sell them kayaking gear and they'll use it on the river and how a vast majority of the people doing whitewater SUP are getting gear <laughs> for free anyway, or as a pro deal as an athlete or something. Um, but, uh, that's my frustration is, is is sort of contending with people imagining it overtaking whitewater kayaking, you know, as as a sport, which well, we hear, a, you know, a surprising amount. Interesting. I didn't. You know, I maybe was, not overtaking, but it's like a legit, like a legitimate booming sport, you know. Yeah, whitewater uh, SUP is like a, a very small niche sport, and I, I think it can sustain like some whitewater SUP actual boards. But not from 400 companies, maybe from like two or three. And um, but you, I mean, you go to Buena Vista and you you spend like two weeks in Buena Vista and you start to think otherwise because it seems like the entire town is like three generations of people are out on SUP board surfing. You know what I mean? I mean, Nana's out there shredding the the wave. You know? <laughs> yeah, uh, I think you're right. But you know, making like <laughs> making specific, uh, you know, those whitewater SUP boards, uh, a number of them, you can just go paddle anywhere. And I think that applies to making whitewater SUP gear like dry suits and stuff like that. Don't make it for whitewater SUP. Make it for whitewater, and SUPers will, you know, start using it by default. It doesn't, That's right. you know, it doesn't have to be made for their niche. Their niche is just too stinking small for, you know, commercializing it in that way. I mean, you took an SUP board on the Gauley, didn't you? There, Mr. Grace. Yeah, long time How'd ago. How'd that go? I swam a few times, but I did pretty good. Once or twice? I, Maybe two I, times, you think? Until I got tired. <laughs> until I got tired, I was doing pretty good. Like, you know, I kind of just rode it on my knees through some Where'd of the you get big... tired? Like initiation? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I was... I, I didn't swim. I, I, I stood up through a lot of the rapids. You know what? I'm going to put a picture. I almost made it through Sweets Falls. And there's photographic yep. evidence of it. I made it all the way... I almost made it without that thing sliding out from – anyway, this isn't about me. Let's talk about <laughs> – this, this is my one thing about SUP and why I'm a believer in it. 
is that I can't get my wife to go kayaking on the French Broad with me if I had to, but I can say, hey, let's take the boards and let's go for a cruise down to downtown, and she's up for it every time. Hmm. So whatever whatever that means or how that equates to stores or sales or what retailers has it, that that makes me believe in it and its long-term sustainability. So... That's all I got. We, put, you know, we put on an event, the Battle of the Broad. Uh, Luke and I put on the world's first one-wheel derby world championship, and uh, let's use that as a segue into one wheel. What is well, hold one on wheel? for a second? Wait for one sec, Gentlemen, Do you see a lot of SUP out in the gorge? I guess you do, right? Yeah, we, there's a lot of people out doing downwinders on the Columbia, which looks pretty fun. Um, What's a downwinder? Yeah, like. Like basically, you're going upstream on the Columbia, but downwind, and it, you get these big swells out in the river in the summer, like overhead, I think, for a surfer. Um, and I don't know, there's a lot of like surf skis out there, especially like we have like a big surf ski race in the summer. And but there's also a lot of guys out doing uh, doing downwinders on subs, and people are fired up about it. it sounds you could take a sub down the trough or something like that. It's uh, uh, I'm kind of happening. I'm definitely in the well <laughs> camp on the appeal of whitewater SUV. <laughs> I keep thinking yeah, um, how appealing it would be to like take a pair of rollerblades out to like the mountain bike trail system behind my house. You guys are such haters. <laughs> oh my god! All right, let's let him <laughs> talk. It's, We're it's awesome. Awesome. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> so let's hit up the uh, the downwinder experience. Is uh, it's kind of like whitewater kayaking is a regular kayaking. You know, you're you're out there in open water in big swells. You're surfing the swell for, you know, maybe 30% of the experience. So you're just out there surfing on these big swells going downwind. I mean, it's actually pretty awesome. It looks pretty fun. It looks pretty fun. I've I've seen some videos from guys doing that with uh, foils. Yeah. And that looks really compelling, actually. Yeah. So, like, the whole foil inception is um, while it's working on waves via Laird Hamilton many years ago, in downwinding experiences, people are getting up on foil and foiling around in open water with just a little bit of a wind swell, and they're up and foiling for, I mean, I, I saw a video of a guy going for almost three minutes. That's like surfing for three minutes out there in open water. That's pretty amazing. And also, you're starting to see guys on SUPs on a foil coming off a wave in the ocean and then pumping the foil in a full circle and catching the next wave coming in and never coming off foil. I mean, it's there's some pretty cool stuff going on in the SUP industry. While that's, you know, foil SUPing is never going to be mainstream, it's actually exceptionally dangerous, and I've hit myself with my own foil multiple times. Um, it's still pretty awesome. We should, we should make a dry suit just for foil oh, SUP. Oh, Jesus, well... <laughs> Yeah, you better put some protection on it because, like, those foils, like, they will mess you up. All right, we got we got about fifteen minutes here. I want to get I want I want to jump into the one wheel. So, Luke, what's a one wheel, and, and tell us a little bit about your involvement with the company. Um, so one wheel is a uh, it's an electric board sport. You know, most people want to say, oh, that's kind of like an electric skateboard, but it really isn't. It's a giant wheel in the center of a board. You're in the surfing, snowboarding, skateboarding stance. And uh, it can go off-road, on-road, through trade shows. It makes trade shows way more fun. And um, it makes single-track mountain mountain biking trails really fun. And uh, so it is self-balancing. And it has an app where you can uh, actually adjust the settings and shape the experience to make it feel more like... Um, surfing and turning on your back foot by keeping the nose up higher and that's called elevated mode or you can put it in extreme mode and it feels like kind of riding a snowboard on a groomer super fast and then you can put it in a beginner mode which uh, I sometimes do for my kids that are really young five and seven years old so when they ride it it has a governed speed to keep them from like just going super fast and crashing um, and uh, yeah it's super fun I mean it's it's just another board sport in the quiver of sports. It's not some halo sport. It's not uh, super extreme or anything. It's accessible. It's attainable for everyday people to have a board sport feeling in two minutes or less, whether it's in their driveway or 
in the parking lot of a retail store. Now, the one wheel, I remember when they first came out, and now there's a second version, correct me, that it, this is the second version that, that just released? Yeah, the second version is called One Wheel Plus, wow. and it has uh, some enhanced features, and it will be actually available to purchase. Uh, it's available to purchase now, but you know the first ones will be coming off the production line in uh, late February. So originally when the first One Wheel came out, I saw it, got on one, I was like, oh man, that's cool, and... You know, I was like, maybe I'll get one of those. And then I was kind of thinking this was like a three, four hundred dollar um, device, and it turned out it was eleven hundred dollars. I think was their retail cost. And I kind of, you know, not I, I wasn't hating on it, but I kind of thought, well, I don't know if that's ever going to be a thing. I don't know if that's going to catch on. Well, well, that's not the price we would pay, John. Luke, of course, would help us out with a what? Yeah, they're two. The retail, the retail price is like the retail price is fifteen hundred bucks. Fifteen hundred bucks. Okay. And for us, it would be what closer to four or five hundred. You think? <laughs> it's fourteen ninety nine for you guys. We got a one dollar deal. But but regardless, if they're if they're on to version two, there must be some sticking power. Southern Wrap Supply in town here is selling through crates of these things. So Justin tells me. How did that happen, Luke? <laughs> you know, it's um, if you if you look at a one wheel, and somebody tells you the price, you'd be like, "That is crazy! I'll never buy that thing." The difference is, it's customer experience. They're buying an experience. It's not just buying a a product, and it's an experience that they don't know. And once they have it, they're gonna say something like, "Wow, this thing feels like I'm." snowboarding or feels like I'm kind of riding in powder or something like that. They'll, they have this unique response to the product and then that starts to build value. So the experience has a lot of value and the, uh, um, the components in a one wheel are, um, are pretty expensive components. I mean, I'm talking about this thing, Bluetoothing to your phone and shaping the way it actually rides and the speeds and the, and the power so there's a lot in there that most consumers don't realize, and once they do, it, it has more value. But that's where Justin at Southern Wrap Supply, he rides it, and he gets people on a one wheel to have that experience. That's why, and so he's just spreading, um, spreading the feeling, and that feeling is what's selling it. I guess that was the thing. The thing I've noticed about it is when I first saw it, I was like, ah, oh, that looks pretty cool. And then Graham Siler uh, got. A one wheel and he is definitely the gorgeous foremost one wheel enthusiast <laughs> and I sort of like noticed I saw that he got it and I was like I was like that thing looks like fun but it also like looks like something that you're gonna you're gonna be over it in like a week and wish that you hadn't spent fifteen hundred dollars on that and that like it doesn't really seem like that's what's happened I mean he seems stoked on it he's still out riding it all the time I've hopped on it a little bit it's pretty fun I mean I don't know I mean, I don't have $1,500 to spend on a one wheel, but it does seem like the people who buy them aren't just like putting it in the closet after a week and deciding they're over it. They're, they're stoked on it. Yeah. I mean, so I'm going, I'm going to a trade show in Florida in two weeks and, um, I'm like looking forward to, uh, getting to the trade show. I'm looking forward to getting around the trade show. I'm looking forward to going out to dinner and I have a buddy down there that is crazy about playing golf on a one wheel. And last time I was down in Florida, uh, we went and played golf riding one wheels. And I'm not a huge golf fan, but man, a one wheel makes golf a lot more fun. And I'm actually going to go down there and play golf with this guy. And uh, yeah, so like, you know, I'm looking forward to all these little things that typically you might walk or take an Uber to go do. Um, but, uh, or, drive your car, but a one wheel can make some of those, it makes getting there, you know, more than half, half the fun. Do they give you a hard time about taking a one wheel on a golf course? Uh, we pretty much worked out a deal with this one golf course, uh, <laughs> to go, uh, to go play golf. They're pretty cool. And, uh, I haven't actually had any issues. I've, I've played a couple other times in other parts of the world and, uh, I've never had anybody say you can't do that. I mean, <laughs> It actually has this big wide tire, and a golf course is a really fun place to go ripping down a fairway carving. I mean, you're like carving down the middle of a golf course. I mean, yeah, it's pretty fun. 
That does sound pretty good. And, and, and you got your clubs on your back and the whole nine yards. You're just yeah, clubs on the back and um, yeah. And the thing is, is dude, you got to get a know. picture of that. I want to see a picture of that. I think that's... there's a video. There's actually a video on uh, YouTube uh, that's about the last time we played. It's pretty funny. Very cool. Well, one wheel. Well, do you ever one wheeled? Yeah, I've used Luke's a couple times at CKS, a couple other places. They're fun. I'm in the same camp with with Lewis. You know, uh, I th- I think that I mean I think they're they're a lot of fun, and certainly you know, if I fifteen hundred dollars in disposable income, I'd I'd go out and drop it. You know, but I think about like where we live in Morgantown, where we live, you know, where every rose at a twenty degree, you know, pitch, you know, twenty percent grade. You know, uh, I'm not sure how practical it would be, but I don't know. Well, the, the, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about our pro deal price after we get off the show here, and we'll, yeah, we'll we maybe see a, what our uh, makes after hammer that. factor uh, pro <laughs> deal here, some sort of. Yeah, yeah, we can just negotiate that right now. It's a ninety-nine, and how sick are you of getting pro deal requests from paddlers, like on a one to ten scale? <laughs> Uh, that's why I'm, I, I compromise right away and just say fourteen ninety nine. We can make it happen, right? Um, but you know, on the uh, that's that's one thing. So think about this: it's like riding a skateboard and riding down a hill on a skateboard for the average person. That's a scary prospect, and um, and a one wheel can go up about twenty five to thirty percent grade, but when it goes down a hill, it governs your speed and recharges and you can't ride too fast. It actually will slow you down no matter how steep that hill is. Hmm. And um, so it has some uh, it has some kind of surprises that I, I think consumers don't even realize when they actually buy it. And one of the most compelling things that blew up one wheel was when the first boards were delivered to customers. They could only go about 10 miles an hour. And then an and then the, uh, an app was launched, and people were able to update their firmware, and they all of a sudden had a board that had all these other features that they didn't even realize existed. And it's almost like going to buy a, uh, you know, a Volkswagen Jetta, and then all of a sudden there's a firmware update, and you have a Porsche. <laughs> it, it was recall. pretty cool. <laughs> the happiness you saw from customers was pretty awesome. So what do you do for one wheel, and how many of these things has one wheel sold? Um, one wheel sold thousands of these. How and, many, how uh, many thousands? Um, less than a hundred thousand and, um, you know, more than 10. <laughs> and, uh, I am the sales manager and, uh, I kind of oversee a little bit of like kind of brand management and direction on some level. And Kyle Dirksen is the CEO and founder and he's, um, you know, he, he created One Wheel because he has an electrical engineering background and he loves to snowboard and uh, he tried to marry the two things a little bit. So let's, let's actually, let's use this as a quick segue into a person that we know who's doing a, not, not a similar product in any way, but maybe about to experience a similar business uh, model is our friend Jimmy Blakeney doing the uh, inflatable balance board. Right, so we're talking about Dirk, who has an electrical engineering degree, making these one wheels. Jimmy's just released this inflatable balance board. I guess a Kickstarter is that right? Yeah. Yep. Do you know, Kumo do you board. Know, do you know anything about that or what he's doing? I mean, you 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 know something about making uh, inflatable SUP boards for sure, right? Yeah. So um, you know the uh, the Kumo board is a inflatable balance board, and it has a lot of um pretty cool features through adjustability of pressure of the actual roller and the actual board. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, there's, I, I believe in, I believe in things that challenge your balance. I like that about SUP and whitewater SUP, um, uh, even more. And with, um, with one wheel, it challenges your balance a little bit. And Kumo board is kind of like a, a trainer of balance. I think, um, so there's a lot of cool things about Kumo board and I can see people like getting it and learning how to do it in the easiest lower pressure mode and then getting better on it. And uh, maybe later in life, those people won't break their hip going down the steps because they'll just have better balance or maybe they'll be better at snowboarding because of it. Who knows? So what obstacles is Jimmy going to face here? I mean, he's starting out, you know, when I see Kickstarter, I don't know anything about Jimmy's business or his experience in doing this, but in building these things, but 
you know, I, I think sometimes these things start with an idea, but then there's a huge hurdle of manufacturing involved. I mean, do you think he's going to, what, what, if you were to give him advice in that regard, what would you say? Um, you know, based on looking at the board, um, he's gotten over a number of obstacles in, in manufacturing to get it to, to get prototypes to fruition. Um, when it comes to scaling manufacture in the inflatable business and hitting price point targets, I think that's one of the most challenging things. And I think there'll be a, you know, a challenge for him for scaling it into the retail business, but in the, the direct sale business. And if uh, he only stays in that realm, um, he'll be able to have a great product for consumers to use. But I think that's one of the biggest challenges is just making sure the business works across all channels of manufacturing and distribution. So why not, and, and I'm not saying this to disrespect retailers in any way, because I fully understand the strength of a retail network, but why does why does one wheel not just go direct and cut those prices on those boards by some double-digit percentage? You know, um, a, the business model of one wheel is more built around direct sales. And if it was built around retail, mm-hmm. at this point, it would actually cost over $2,000. So one wheel is built around direct sales. That's your eventual target. Channels. No, it's built around direct sales because it started a lot like Kumo board. It started on Kickstarter and, uh, and then quickly realized that retailers play a really, really important part uh, in getting the brand out there. They do because they can, you know, Justin at Southern Wrap Supply can put people on one wheels. One wheel.com can't put people on one wheels. And uh, so having the experience um, creates co- customers. And uh, so, you know, the retail model came second and um, it hasn't been a very profitable model for one wheel, but we've maintained it to be profitable for the retailer. And as the business scales up and does more volume, the cost to build of a one wheel will ultimately come down even more and will make retail more profitable and um so does that kind of make sense so you're saying the I mean, it seems tight right, so. yeah, yeah it seems tight. i mean we got a great honestly we have a we have a for the cost to build on a one wheel we have an exceptionally compelling retail price yeah but someone's getting pinched in there it's either you or the retailer if you're if you're doing the wholesale price in there yeah, yeah. Well, the the retailers making a pretty good margin and moving through boards, um, and, uh, and and we're like we're surviving at wholesale, but um, the direct sale business was where it all started for one wheel. You know, it was like great idea. It's like Kuma board, great idea, going out there and seeing seeing if it's got some legs underneath of it. Yeah. and obviously it did. Well, the thing I see like with a Kuma board is I th- I think it's a it's a cool product and. You know, if Jimmy figures out his production, it, it's a cool thing. But there's nothing that doesn't keep 15 different people from making a Kumo board, you know. And But the thing about one wheel is it seems pretty technologically – it seems like it would be hard for someone else to jump in and get it right. I believe there was the one little knockoff thing that had the two wheels and they all caught on fire. And um, you know, There's the whole fleet of quote-unquote hoverboards out there. Made by various manufacturers, but you guys must have some IP on the on what you your product, right, Luke? Yeah, so there's there's quite a bit of IP on utility and design with One Wheel, and I think Kuma Board, uh, I think Jimmy has has some sort of IP related to it. That's intellectual property. Yeah, intellectual property patents that relate to the Kuma Board, and um, so I think he'll be able to protect it on some level. Um, yeah. Very cool. <laughs> Well, we're about to our uh, time limit here on the show, and normally we jump into a rants and raves section here at the end. Um, Luke, have you ever heard any of our podcasts, or do you know about the rants and raves? Um, I have no idea, actually. Well, we all we all pick out a rant, something we really love, or we want to dote on, or we pick out a rant, uh, no, a rave, something we're into, or a rant, something we want to kind of complain about a little bit. Anything on your head you'd like to rant or rave about? Hmm. 
I don't know. Maybe John will have an idea for me. <sighs> I don't know. For you? I have a hard enough time with myself. Well, Geltman, let's start with you. Surely you have a rant or a rave. You've been out in the field for two weeks with gear. Product that really came together for you. <clears throat> um, I have a rant. This is something that I've been thinking about for quite a while. All right. And there's a notion that Let's I would really like to, to disabuse our listeners of. All and right. that is that there is some sort of connection between how badly your gear smells and how hardcore of a paddler you are. Hmm. <laughs> People are out there taking this perverse pride in smelling like the Grim Reaper's grundle. And I, uh, I, I would like to share that that is not the hallmark of being a hardcore paddler. That makes you someone who has not mastered the basics of personal hygiene. Right. I'm going to jump on. I'm going to jump on that rant and say <laughs> that when you send in this nasty smelling gear to IR for repair and it's soaking wet and obviously <laughs> not taken care of in any way, shape or form is not cool. And yeah. not cool at all. If you, you know, and we open a box sometimes, it smells like a cadaver, and I'm not kidding. <laughs> I, I have these two cats, and uh, my gear bag was peed on by one of those cats. <laughs> and, uh, and I don't think that makes me hardcore. I think that makes me negligent of my gear. Yeah. If, you, if you're like on the road for a month and you smell terrible, you get a pass. If you are paying rent and have access to a washer and dryer and you haven't washed your gear in a month, you need to, to rectify that immediately. Yeah. And don't send it to IR like that either. Uh, <laughs> Do not. Very good. All right. Rant on stinky gear. That seems to be a three-way across the board rant on that. So <laughs> I'm going to rave on a piece of gear, and this is going to be a plug for John Welch, who I'm sure his ego is going to pop here. But Thank you. I just got back from the Grand Canyon and was with a group of – Seven good friends, and I had a Royal Flush spray deck. And I've raved on this piece of gear before, but I just want to rave on it again because we were doing about 30 miles a day in the Colorado River Splish Splash, and I would get to camp or get out to lunch, and I would have virtually no water in my boat. And I paddled the exact same rapids, exact same river with a bunch of people who had different kinds of spray skirts and their boats were soaked so there we go Royal flush I would, spray I skirt. jump on that just a second how confidence inspiring having that skirt is on somewhere like the baker like just going into these massive massive rapids with these huge crassing unpredictable features and knowing that your skirt's going to stay on is like essential that's good to hear. You guys have no idea how thankless of a job making making branded spray skirts are. It is a never-ending struggle and battle. But so that's good. I'm glad people are out there enjoying them. That was fully unsolicited, and uh, and it's it's pretty cool. I, uh, my boat was dry, and was Luke, cold. do you want to say anything nice about IR gear while you're here? Oh Jesus, we're got, we're cutting it off. This isn't. You're getting an invoice, Weld. <laughs> You know, I think I think uh, John yes. Weld and, and I are has had a uh, how can attitude in trying to make better gear, and not saying we can't, not saying never, and that's definitely something I appreciate about uh, immersion right. research. I think this is great. Oh Jesus! We should do a whole show on just <laughs> different aspects of how good IR gear is. Well, I'm also going to rant that. You have a royal flush on the front of this spray skirt. But well, it's actually it called the Royale. I, I don't want to be a stickler. I'm gonna it's rant. called the Royal. That's what I'm going to say. I'm going to rant on the name. The name is Royale. You know, It's the Royal Flush. Yeah. That's just what it is. Fix, fix your website. Fix your order forms. Whatever you got going on. <laughs> All right, yeah. guys. Luke, thank you so much for taking the time and coming off. Very, very interesting stuff there about the one wheel and, and your thoughts on the SUP. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me. Are, are you going to be in Asheville for the Battle of the Broad this year? I'm planning on it, and um, it should be fun. I really enjoyed doing the, the one-wheel derby that involved the the beverages and the, uh, the powdered donuts. <laughs> all right, sweet. Well, I guess that concludes our show. And to all of our listeners out there, 
there's anything you'd like to hear or anything you'd like to comment on, feel free to send us a message. We always like our viewer feedback. And we will be back on schedule with a very special guest next week. That's right. Um, and then send your hate, River Running SUP people, send your hate mail to John Grace. Ah, uh, God. If, you can if, find him on Facebook. You know what? Let's just go ahead and let's just do a tally. Love or hate, just comment, do you love it or do you hate it to Whitewater SUP? And we're going to we're gonna lay this one to rest well because I think love it's going to right. outweigh it. All right. <laughs> All right, everybody. Have a good day. Cheers. Right. Thanks, guys. See, See you, you guys. Bye.